0: welcome to our podcast bad it's all about crime brought to you by bad sydney crime writers festival and the city of sydney i'm suzanne leal
1: and i'm andy muir and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing subscribe to our podcast then jump onto the bad all about crime book club page on facebook to be part of the conversation and thanks for listening
2: Welcome to our podcast, Bad. It's all about crime. I'm Sue Turnbull, academic, crime fiction reviewer, sister in crime, and chair of Bad Sydney. And with me today is Andy Muir, crime writer and scriptwriter who was nominated for an Australian Writers Guild Award for his work on the underbelly series, The Squizzy Tailor. Suzanne Leal, lawyer and author of the prize-winning crime novel, The Deceptions, among other titles, and was also online host of the Thursday Book Club. And last but by no means least, Catherine Dupelou-Ménager, avid crime reader and artistic director of the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, that we'll be talking about a little bit later in the podcast. And pressing all the buttons is our wonderful podcast producer, Kel Butler, who has done such a great job of getting our discussions and interviews about crime out there into the ether over the course of this COVID-challenging year. This week, we're not bringing you any interviews, but instead a roundup of 2021 with some helpful hints for Christmas book buying. So the challenges I set the panellists was this. Tell us about your most memorable crime read from 2021. Tell us about a favourite crime read from the archives. And what would you buy someone who doesn't really read crime for Christmas to get them reading more crime? I'm not sure if you've heard about this, people, but in Iceland there is a wonderful tradition called, and forgive my pronunci- pronunciation, Jula, I think it's Yula, Yula Boka Flod which translates literally as the Christmas book flood. Apparently, this started during the Second World War when paper was one of the few things not rationed and when book giving became a tradition at Christmas. As Icelanders, like many Norse people, celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve, this excellent tradition involves going to bed with a hot chocolate and a brand new book. I suggest we all adopt this in 2021 and make it a good crime read. So, are we ready? Let's get started with our most memorable reads of 2021. And Catherine, I'm looking at you
3: and your choice. Thank you, Sue. Um, Look, this is really difficult, I have to say, to begin with. And um, I think probably I could have nominated 10 or 12 books that were my best read of the year. And of course, many of them will be talked about during the festival. But one book I've read very recently is called Tank Water. It's by Michael Burge. It's a he's a first-time crime writer. And it's a really it's a really interesting book. So it's classic small time noir, but with a difference. Um the story is that James Brandt, who's now journalist Returns to Kippen, hit the town where he was born for the first time in twenty years. His cousin Tony has died, found dead under the local bridge, and has left him the family farm. But what's all that about? What's, why did Tony die? Was he murdered? Did he just, did he jump? And what's the secret? The story moves between the present, so two thousand and five, um, and the past in nineteen eighty five. After he escapes a homophobic attack at a gay beat, James begins to think there's more going on than meets the eye, which he knew to begin with in 1985. And it becomes it that the slow the story moves between those two time frames and slowly you get to see what it might be about. Um I think it's it's sensational. It has a nice ending, a happy ending, but not a sentimental ending, which I really like. Um and, you know, you get that, you get the things that do happen in the country. Accidental death of a child, you know, in, in a dam, it's not a fact, a dam. Um, there's that top, cut the cop, who's, is he crooked? Is he just closing his eyes? Is it too difficult in a small town? When you know everybody, is it too difficult to prosecute? Um, but underneath it, there's this, this, what is a man? What makes a man? The whole, the whole tough masculinity thing. And uh, I thought it was really excellent. A coming-of-age story as well, and a lovely soft heart. So it belongs to that
2: whole tradition that we're seeing in crime fiction in Australia, where we're going regional, we're going to small towns around the country.
3: we are. Um, And small towns are so good because it's obvious, you know, that people know each other, people know each other's secrets, people try and keep them under wraps, but it doesn't always work. Absolutely. And then there's all the things that happen in small isolated towns, you know, drought, obviously, but but other things as
2: well. I think that's one of the most interesting shifts we've seen in Australian crime fiction is that move from the city-based crime to the regional crime.
3: Yeah. um, Although there's a bit of city-based stuff coming back too, which I think it's... So for a while, everything was out there. There's also the beachside noir, which is one of my (laughs) favourites. Again, because, you know, a beachside community has holiday lets. People come in for the summer, leave in the winter, so there's a, a clear change of mood. Um, yeah, I think it's a great time for Australian crime, actually. I agree. I agree. Okay, um, Andy, you chose a book
1: mm. that
2: I have not come across.
1: Well, like Catherine, I just found this so hard. It was like you read so much throughout the year and then you've got you know the pile of books that you're reading in preparation for the bad festival and it's all kind of getting confused. But yeah, Willie Vlaughton's The Night Always Comes and I've realised it's not so much a crime novel as a a novel set in a criminal world and it's a story of a um, a young woman who is um it's it's uh you know working poor in America she's got an opportunity to buy the the house that they're renting and everything falls apart at the last minute and so she kind of goes on this um you know desperate sort of search to get the money together to sort of buy this house I and mean, again we're sort of talking about twenty thousand dollars like it's a, such a pitiful amount of money um, and you know she just gets in a whole lot of trouble and it's it's um it's gritty and it's it's this it's part of this kind of writing that's coming out of America at the moment of it's it's not I mean poverty porn is kind of a really terrible term but it's that sort of working class um, you know people really up against a system that is not in their corner. And S.A. Cosby's another writer that's kind of doing it, but Willie Vlaughton is is not really a crime writer, but it was sort of a book that I think also demonstrates the way crime is kind of moving into other genres and sort of becoming a a real sort of backbone to storytelling.
2: Yeah, there's there's always a degree of social commentary, but it sounds like this is is deep dish social commentary, especially as it Addresses real estate.
1: Yeah, that's right, and it's very real. Like it's sort of it's it's um it's kind of what you sort of see on the news when you're sort of looking at something from America. And um, I, I found it just a really um, horrific read, but also incredibly um, moving, and you know just great characters, which is sort of what we, we want to mm. sort of engage with when we're reading. Um, so yeah, that was my pick, which was a little bit left field.
2: We have, I've not heard of the author before, but as you say, he's not, a, not necessarily a crime writer. Willie Vlaughton.
1: Willie Vlaughton. So he's written, um, I think there's about five books. Um, one of them, Lean on Pete, is about a, a young boy who kind of ends up sort of looking after a, a, a racehorse. Um, that was turned into a film a couple of years ago, two years ago, I think. So he's, he's kind of there on the periphery of the world. And I think he's also like a, a, um, a writing lecturer at one of the universities. So he's got a pedigree to him um, and he's sort of, he, um, he kind of feels a, a bit like, you know, when you're in first year and everyone reads Bukowski and like that's, <laughs> you know, Bukowski and Hemingway and that. Well, Willie Vlorton's kind of like one of those authors that people know about and it's kind of, you know, a, a little knowing wink.
3: Is this marketed as a crime novel?
1: No, it's not. Because it's why,
3: interesting when that happens.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of why I was I was I thought, well, this is kind of, it's not a crime novel, but it's it's dealing with a criminal story mm. and it's a criminal world. And, you know, some of the other books that I've picked in my, um, for the rest of the se- selections, it's like, yeah, these aren't really crime novels. That um, you know, it's again, they're sort of the crime is infecting uh, other stories,
3: pushing the boundaries here.
0: Not That's really, right. I think the boundaries yeah. are
1: getting blurred. I mean, a bit like you were saying, you know, the, the, um, you know, the sort of the, the small country town stories, you know, I think that that's sort of, again, you know, people in bad situations, mm. um, you know, not necessarily crime, but it's sort of just this thing that's, that's across these stories that we're coming
3: Yeah, with. well, Tony Birch has got a collection, but that is also short stories with a lot of crime in them. They're not necessarily crime short stories. There's no detective, there's no villain, although actually one of them does have villains in it, um, but very much about crime and ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm.
2: Okay, well, let's let's turn to Suzanne and your choice from this year, Suzanne.
0: Yeah, my choice is Before You Knew My Name by Jacqueline Bublitz. And I first came across this book uh, late last year, I think, or even um, a little bit earlier because I was asked to blurb it before it came out uh, in print. So I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about the story. I knew nothing about the author. It's a debut book. And um, I was – and when you're asked to blur books too, I mean, it's – you never quite know what you're going to get. And you're looking for something to say. You're looking for something to uh, attract you to to the writing. And so I was coming completely cold but also very curious. Um, It it was so impressive. It really – overwhelmed me and really um, astonished me the way that Jacqueline Bublitz wrote the story of a girl called Alice Lee who is dead and she's the narrator, so it's a first-person narrator in part and when we meet her, uh, she's died and she's telling her story. Um, Mirrored with that is the story of Ruby Jones who, like Alice, Lee has found herself in New York. Only Ruby's an Australian who's escaped her own uh, situation, and she is the jogger who finds the body of Alice Lee. And so the two narratives, third person for Ruby and first person for Alice, intertwine. Uh, the book was written, as Jacqueline said, because there's so much focus on crime books about the dead victim and then following either the procedure or following the perpetrator and the victim just becomes a the, uh, something necessary to to promote uh, the rest of the story whereas in this book Alice Lee as the victim has agency because she is narrating the story herself uh, it reminded me partly of The Lovely Bones by Alice Seabold um and it has an energy to it. So although you know that this young woman, she's only 18 when she dies, is dead, uh, y- you want to know who she was. And so as the book continues and as you know that the day of her death or the recounting of her death is coming coming closer, you feel the sadness of the loss. So I, I thought it was really interesting because it does uh, put the crime genre on its head to turn it around, to make the victim the the main story that makes it sound a sort of fairly grim read but there's an energy and an excitement to Ruby to to um Alice Lee and and to some extent to Ruby Jones that really lifts the book and makes it a um an energetic read about New York as well because this is when it Mm. all takes place it's funny as well. There are some funny bits in it. The Death Club. Remember that bit? Yes, yes.
3: I yes. would have picked that book too. I was rather cross actually. Yes, I thought <laughs> she got there first. You why she should always answer your emails when you get them.
2: And of course, we had Jacqueline in the in in the room being interviewed yes. at, uh, with us over the course of the podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one, you can go back and um, and hear the interview. What did you get out of the interview, Suzanne? That that in that really kind of enlightened you about her process was there anything that she said that Jacqueline said that that shed new light on the book for you
0: but i think what was interesting was that she went to new york so she's um new zealander australian and she went to new york specifically to write the book so i suppose what interested me about that interview was what she the steps she took to make the book so to actually immerse yourself in a setting to find the book that you need and I thought that that needs well it needs time but it also needs confidence that the book will arise. Mm. There is an
2: extraordinary sense of place in there and and that's actually a nice segue to my choice which um, it's it's odd that um, three of us have chosen books set in America um, as a memorable read and like all of you I could have chosen so many and, and it's little bit easy to choose the one that I read most recently, but it really did knock my socks off. And that is Michael Connolly's latest, The Dark Hours. And in terms of a sense of place, I've got to confess to you, I actually went on Google Maps and went around Los Angeles with the central character, who is Renee Ballard. I I found out where she was on the first stakeout, on the first page, how she traveled, where she went. And I think I've actually located... Bosch's house where it might be in the canyon. So Michael Connolly has been documenting Los Angeles for quite a long time. Um, I think the Harry Bosch series is up to 23. Renee Ballard has been in four books. Uh, one was entirely dedicated to her and then Bosch has been appearing in her. So in a way we've got the Connolly-verse. He's created this, this fictional world. But I think what really got me about the dark hours is this is a book about the impact of covid on policing Mm. in los angeles in a year where people are recovering from a disastrous presidency and the outbreak of civil unrest and what comes through is the complete demoralization of the police force the cutbacks they've spent all their money dealing with the protests following the murder of george floyd mm. it's all there it's all real and renee is in the middle of this as still a dedicated investigating officer she's the only one that still hangs on to the need to actually do a proper investigation and all the people around her including she's been put with an offsider and they're investigating a very nasty serial a um, couple of serial rapists they call the Midnight men and her offsider has gone off for the weekend with her boyfriend in Santa Barbara and as Renee comments she's lost her empathy this this colleague has lost her empathy and once you lose your empathy you lose your power you lose your will to police so this is actually quite mm. an interesting book about what it what it is, what it means to be a policeman, a police person, an, an officer of the police in Los Angeles, in America, right now. And, um, well, the two crimes, I won't go into those. It's just a compelling read. And you'll be very glad to know, Catherine, there is a dog there is a dog. <laughs> does there he die? A, the she... dog does not die. Uh-huh. It's, it's, but um, that's a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a taster for our discussion about our festival later. <laughs> OK, so the next challenge I set the panel was to come up with something from the archives, a favourite crime read, something memorable that they've really enjoyed and that has stayed with them. And so, Suzanne, I'm going to
0: ask you first, What what was your book from the archives? The book that I chose is Room by Emma Donoghue. Uh, this is a book that came to my attention just after it was released, I think maybe a year or so. So it was, um, it was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2010. And I was asked to interview Emma Donoghue for Sydney Writers Festival when she came out. So she's, um, Irish English from memory. And, um, By that stage, I hadn't heard of the book. Again, like, you know, when when you blurb books, when you're asked to interview, often they're books that have flown under the radar for you and you know nothing about them. And then once you actually read about them and read them, you wonder why why you didn't know. Uh, So, again, I read the book with a view to... uh, interviewing the author and it's interesting how you read books, you know, whether you're reading them to to judge or you're reading them to review or you're reading them to interview or reading them for enjoyment. This was Arresting. It's a story told uh, from the perspective of five-year-old Jack who lives in a room. His whole world is a room and he shares this room with his mother who he calls Ma Uh, It doesn't take very long to realise that, in fact, these two are captive in a room and that this child has been born into the room and that's all he knows. Uh, It's it's brilliantly written. I mean, obviously, it was shortlisted for the man Booker Prize, so it's been well lauded. I think it's it's very hard to write from a child's perspective and to write well from it. And also to, um, when as in this book, the whole book is from the child's perspective, to get the narrative through and to work out what's happening and how it's happening while staying in a really young uh, child's mind is, um, is extraordinary. So, and, and. Emma Donahue really gets the dread that slowly pervades the book. So we've got this bright, sparkling five-year-old who loves his mother, who um, makes uh, animate objects of everything inanimate in the, in the room. So room is room. Wardrobe is wardrobe. And that becomes his world. But slowly we realise that there's a malevolent force. There's a man who is keeping them con- uh, captive. And Emma slowly but with absolute um, precision brings us to the denouement of what's going to happen to these two in this room. I, I, thought it, I thought it was brilliant. Didn't they make a film of this? I have a feeling there was a movie actually yes, made. Yes, yes, there was. But recently, recently, and I, I actually didn't watch it because I, 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 I liked the book so much. Yep. I just wasn't sure how they were going to do it. I know there's that odd thing that
2: happens where you know a really bad book can make a fantastic movie, but a really good book um, mm. is often disappointing when you get to the movie because it's got depth and things that aren't brought yeah. out in the film. Yeah, yeah, which which actually reminds me of um, didn't they? They did a movie version of one of Sarah Paretsky's books I've called V.I. Mm. starring Kathleen Turner, and it well, was she would have been a good person. Though, it would have been, it. except it was a it was really rejected by the the kind of readership that thought oh. that they hadn't got V.I., she was too glamorous, they had glammed her up and it was oh, okay. just not good enough. And for Sarah Paretsky, the mother of sisters in crime, um, this was not a um, a good realisation
3: of her contribution. But, but Sarah Paretsky is your choice, Catherine. Well, it was quite difficult. So I was thinking approaching this as a classic, you know, what's your crime classic? And I thought, well, you know, I mean, where do I start? It could be, it could be P.D. James. It could be Minette Walters. It could be, well, it could be Peter Corris if we get to Australia. It could be Gary Disher. It could be Peter Temple. It could be almost anybody. Um, it could be Malin Nunn, who I think is a fantastic mm-hmm. crime writer. And I thought, well, right, we'll go for Sarah Paretsky. Because for me, she is a classic. And this book, the bu- book I picked was Total Recall, which is not the first book. Originally, I was going to go for the first book. Um, which is an indemnity only. Um, it's, I think this is a Paretsky classic, but why is it a kind of a classic classic? Well, it has a detective who's a classic. And it's, I think, I mean, you will know more than me, Sue, but I reckon that Paretsky almost invite, invented the kind of hard-bitten woman detective no?
2: Well, there was Marsha Muller before her oh, and, yes, and Sue yes, Grafton. They, they were all working at about the same time. So there was a kind of like little circle of, and I'm yeah. not quite sure who came in first, but I think it was Marsha Muller. But yeah. hers wasn't Actually, a
3: private detective. She was a police a woman. A police woman, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, but VI is just a fantastic creation. Victoria Iphigenia. I mean, whoa, hey, you know, great name, always known as VI. So she's fantastic. She's uh, her father was in the police force she's Italian and Irish American I think the other bit's Irish and so it's she's a fantastic person and it was the first book I suppose apart from some of the Patricia um, Cornwall's where there's cooking you know there's she's in the kitchen and she does a bit of cooking and she has her mother's very special um wine glasses or are they liqueur glasses that her mother brought from Italy and so there's a she's she's fleshed out without ever being sentimental so that's one of the things about her, I mean, about Sarah Pretzky generally. Her themes are classic in that she, she Sarah Pretzky does a lot of writing about corporate and political corruption and the way they affect the little person. A bit what you were talking about—that Amer- is America of thirty years ago, Chicago of thirty years ago. But it's a similar. How? What about the little people? How do they get? done over and um and it all gets hidden and then there's a, but there's always a personal story sometimes it's a member of her family there's one where she has a cousin who's murdered um there's one where a family member loses all her say uh, loses her savings i think anyway so this one um similarly has her investigating a family whose insurance says say they won't pay out when i think the man's died it's a long time since i've read it Um, so that's there too but what is really interesting in this book is she weaves in two other huge plots so um one is um she's she's looking into this insurance scheme or scam or is it a scam where she comes across um, protesters calling for the recovery of holocaust assets held by banks or insurance companies and she also brings in um whether that the idea of reparations and restitution for slavery so it's real for african-americans it's really complex and the holocaust story then has another repercussion personally because her closest friend who's a fantastic feisty difficult doctor called lottie herschel is completely blindsided by somebody supposed that she's jewish she was in germany she was a kinder transport child went to england and um lived there and it so a lot of the story is told from by Lottie as well. Um somebody has come back from her past and it's impossible. And is he an imposter? He's recovered memory syndrome, apparently. And all this works together. So all the all the threads of corruption, of evil in high places, and of a personal story. And I think it's just it's just it's really moving and just really good. The great thing about Paretsky was always that
2: level of political yeah. commentary, you yeah. know, that engagement. And and she was Quite a political figure as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, she started Sisters in Crime in America, yeah. and she did it on behalf of the writers. her Her argument was that that women writers were not women crime writers were not getting reviewed. They were not getting published, yeah. and so she started Sisters in Crime as a very specific kind of campaign. Um, and in fact, um, if I can name drop briefly for a moment, yeah. she, she came to Melbourne yeah. in, a, in the early 90s and we all had tea with her at the Windsor Hotel in Melbourne, the members of Sisters in Crime, Melbourne based. And she kind of blessed the <laughs> Australian Sisters in Crime and went, yes, you can use the name, you do your own thing and off you go. And and I think that the Sisters in Crime Melbourne were also very politically they motivated. They were, yeah. And in fact, have had a huge impact on publishing women's crime subsequently.
3: Absolutely. I mean there is a Sisters in crime in New South Wales. We're kind of in the process of reviving ourselves. But the Melbourne one has been established for a long time and does and does fantastic work. And Sarah Paretsky, yeah, has that real she isn't particularly it isn't a strong feminist edge in, in, in a proselytizing way, but nobody gets anything over VI. No. You know, she's just she's that independent. Tough woman who has relationships and has friendships, and is just, it's just—it's a fantastic. She she is the most extraordinary writer, I think.
2: Yeah, I agree. And and has is still writing. Yeah, I mean, there was a book not so long ago, a couple of years ago. Yeah. We're still in America, Andy. Um, your choice is a Don Winslow.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. We've all gone uh, gone across the Pacific, but I think maybe it's because we're all kind of in you know bad preparation mode, and we're sort of <laughs> we know we're going to be talking about all these Australian writers, and we've had to go somewhere else. But yes, Don Winslow's The Winter of Frankie Machine. Um, he Don Winslow is the author that, you know, I just know I'm going to enjoy. It doesn't matter what what the um, the book is, but The Winter of Frankie Machine, that was the, I think it was probably the first or the second that I, I read of his. And it's the story of a ex-mafia um, hitman who is now sort of retired and living on the, the West Coast uh, of America. And... Um, you know his past comes back to um, to uh, sort out some some deals that he's done in the past that people aren't happy about and um, it's just it's non-stop it just is so um, full of sort of action and and pace and such a great character as well because you've got this hitman who's done terrible things and shouldn't be a hero but um, he, you know, we've kind of got this great hero in Frankie Machine, um, and it introduced me to fish tacos as well. Like, it's sort of, <laughs> I kind of went, "What is this fish taco thing?" So, I, um, yeah, that's, that's um another thing I've got uh, the Winter of Frankie Machine to thank me for, to thank Don Winslow for.
2: And it's so beautifully written.
1: Oh, he's just—it's fantastic. It's—it's it's funny because um, with screenwriting, it's always um you know, Billy Wilder that I'll kind of look to if I'm having trouble. And I know that Don Winslow is the same. Like you can kind of, if you're having a, a problem with a plot or a character, like you can kind of pretty much pick up a, a Don's Winslow and just open it and read something and you'll kind of be inspired or you'll sort of be, you know, something will be triggered um, because he's just, his writing is so efficient and, um, and direct and, you um, you know, he's kind of now known for the, 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 cartel series, which are so rich in their research and, um, exploration of the, um, the, you know, the drug wars that America's been involved with for, you know, 40 years. And then you kind of get, you know, the winter of Frankie machine, which is quite a small compared to those, um, those doorstops, but you know, it's, it's almost like the perfect novel, like it's the right length, great characters and, you know, you can kind of you can read it in an afternoon.
2: Yeah, and it's so genial, which is which is somewhat in contrast with Don Winslow's persona on Twitter, because he was hugely opposed to Trump and was very active. Again, another really politically engaged crime writer who has had a significant effect on politics in the U.S. I would argue.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. Like, it's and it's also unafraid to do that. Like, I think that you know we're often kind of worried about how something's going to affect our careers and you know i suppose it's because he's you know a little bit older and got this you know great sort of record behind him that he can sort of stand up and and um and raise these issues like he's doing in in america cuz he's taken on the um the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in the last you know, couple of days as well and and you know talking he's about he's well
2: worth following on it. he is yeah okay well i i've also got a writer who i think was quite political But a long time ago. And my choice for a book from the archives was Dorothy L. Sayers' Gaudy Night. And I I always want to say Gaudy Night because it, you know, Gaudiamos Igatur, it's the Latin, but it's actually Gaudy, I think. And it's a book which I know has been terribly important to a lot of women, particularly women of my age, who read it um, when they were much, much younger and to whom it introduced the possibility that a woman could go to university. (laughs) Um, Because it's set in Shrewsbury College in Oxford. It's a waspish name. You can tell that that Dorothy L. was having a little bit of a go because there's a lot of infighting in Shrewsbury College. But I started to reread it, and I got through the first 50 pages. And it begins with Harriet Vane, driving back to her Oxford college, and she's driving in her open-topped sports car. She's a successful writer. She stops for lunch somewhere in, I think it's in High Wycombe. She has a splendid lunch and drinks half a bottle of wine and then proceeds on to Oxford and to join in with the other women in her college in this particular celebration. And it's all that. It's all that the woman being independent, the women being at university together, whatever the plot is, it's all the other stuff around it that created this memorable world where women could actually go and study. Now, what they're all studying is... is really to do with the history of universities where you could, once upon a time, as I did, go and study Anglo-Saxon archaeology and nobody worried about what you would do afterwards. Um, they're all studying very kind of arcane subjects, etc. Nobody's worried about, you know, what the applicability of their research will be to the rest of the world. You know, it, does, it marks a huge shift. So actually reading it becomes more and more interesting as well as the fact that it's also the book where Harriet is is wrestling with whether she is able to give up her independence and give herself to Lord Peter Whimsey, who's sort of floating around in the ether around this book as well. So that's my pick, Gordy Knight by Dorothy L. Sayers as one of those really memorable reads.
3: Absolutely. Again, you know, I thought, oh, I was going to say that and I should have done that. It's, It's a fantastic book um and i think the other thing it does is it introduces i mean it's hardly new but the idea that you can have a relationship of equals with if you're a woman and if you're an independent woman which she is and a writer and has her own means with a man you don't have to be subservient but it's quite problematized i suppose the word is again that in the college most of the women do are not married do not have relationships Mm. And there's quite a lot of anger and there's quite a lot of bitterness. It doesn't really, it doesn't pull any punches, that book. It's not a, no. a gilded view of anything. No, it's not. And the, the, that the, in those first 50 pages,
2: I was absolutely entranced by the criticism of what the women were wearing
0: at the Gordy Night.
2: <laughs> there's a whole lot of stuff about clothes. And again, Dorothy L. Sayers does not pull back, or at least Harriet does not pull back in her criticism of the clothing choices that the women have made. Look, it, it it's such a gem. Go back and read it again. The third challenge I presented to the to the panel was to come up with a book, a crime book for a non crime fiction reader as a Christmas present that would hook them into the genre. So, Andy, what was your hook book?
1: Oh, I found this probably the hardest topic of all because it's it's so difficult to. Um, you know, nail down a book to kind of introduce someone to crime because it's like, you know, is that too violent? Is that one – are they going to like that? Do they like to laugh? So it was – I found this very, very difficult. But the one that I chose was um, Finley Donovan is Killing It by L. Uh, Cosimano. Um, and this one is – again, it's not a big read. You could probably knock it off in the afternoon. But it's basically a a writer is having lunch with their agent um, because they're having trouble delivering their latest book, and the agent sort of says, but, you know, you promised them a hit, you know, that you needed a big follow-up and all this. Anyway, a little old lady is listening into this conversation and thinks that the writer is actually a hit man. And at the end of the lunch, a little note is in her handbag to sort of say, I'll give you $50,000 to kill my husband. (laughs) And that's sort of where the book takes off um it's a lot of fun it's kind of it's you know it's silly it's um it's light i think um cosimano is actually um a young adult author um so she's kind of stepped into the crime genre with this with this book and it's sort of it does have that sort of feel to it i mean there's kind of a um a spanish nanny who's sort of you know feisty sidekick that sort of becomes involved in in this sort of escapade as well um but yeah, it's really fun. Good characters. I think there's a follow up that's coming. Like all good crime books, there's always a sequel. Um, so that was that was the one that I thought it would be um, a good introduction. And then I had I just had so many others because I was thinking, well, in terms of that's kind of even though it's it's not you know um gendered it's kind of more a sort of female skewing book and then i was thinking well what would you give what would you give a bloke um and so i was kind of thinking you know the the chris hadfield apollo murders which is kind of a thriller with lots of sort of techno stuff about you know the space race and aircraft and you know um errant astronauts that might be sabotaging things the, the Cold War as well is in there. So it's like, you know, it's kind of got everything that, you know, a non-crime reading male is going to like. Um, and then I also had Robbie Morrison's Edge of the Grave. Um, Robbie Morrison's a, a comic book writer who's decided to now write novels. It was um, – It won the best debut at the Bloody Scotland earlier this year. It's set in 1930s Glasgow. It's kind of Peaky Blinders um, meets the Depression um, and a serial killer is sort of on the loose and that's absolutely, um, yeah, very engaging, entertaining and that kind of, again, kind of filmic, Sort of short chapter bursts, scenes with um, is definitely the sort of the style of the um of crime writing at the moment. So that yeah, was that a sneak.
2: St- that was a sneaky three books. Yeah. I that? know. In see, bed. and look,
1: I've still got. There's another four or five that I wrote down. Well, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe we
2: can put those on the on the Facebook. Well, I thought page. that
1: we could do that because yeah, you know we you do have those. our list.
2: And I'm I'm just. Feel as though we ought to apologise for laughing, and when you said um, the little old lady wants a hitman to kill her husband, but I do remember there was a year when we were um, uh, judging the Scarlet Stiletto Awards at Sisters in Crime, and almost every other story was a domestic noir with the the wife killing the husband. It was (laughs) like what was going on here? It was it was clearly it was some sort of therapeutic gesture. (laughs) <laughs> but it was definitely happening. Look, I I decided that I had not paid enough attention to Australian crime fiction. And in fact, one of the best books of 2021 and definitely a book I think you could give to someone for Christmas who does not read crime is the new Chris Hammer, Treasure and Dirt. It's the fourth in his um, kind of series, but it it's not about Martin Scarsdale. It actually takes a minor character from the previous book, Silver City, and sends him out way far west to the edges of New South Wales and Queensland to a little opal mining town. And one of the things, of course, that I love about this book is it has a map in it. I love crime fiction books with maps and, you know, you can tell if there isn't one, I'm on Google Maps already checking things out. But we are in the town of Finnegan's Gap. It is beautifully laid out. The investigation, we have a a miner um, who is discovered, in fact, crucified in his mine. He's been nailed up on a wooden kind of cross. We discover what ratters are, which are the people who go down mines and steal the opals of other people's uh, minds. We meet all the characters of this small town, including the wonderful mayor who lives out in a kind of um he's he's not the real mayor, but he lives out in a kind of encampment on the edge of town and he favors wearing blue, pink uh, blue tutus um, and is quite an extraordinary character. And there's there's kind of mad Maxi elements to this and a wonderful showdown at the end that actually, even though it's very violent, it had me laughing in the way that very extreme and very funny violence can be. So I would recommend this book to anybody who is not a reader of crime. It's just so beautifully Australian. It's
3: very atmospheric. It is really, and and, and also you learn, I quite like learning from books. So the ratters, I thought, what's a ratter? What's this this all about? Um, and, And the characters are all really interesting and they make mistakes and they You know, uh, yeah, it's a really good book. Yeah, and Chris Hammer will be at our festival. He certainly will. Yeah, more about that anon. Um, Catherine? Well, I'm partly Australian, partly not. I'm going to try. I'm going to do an Andy, but I'm going to be very quick. So I wondered when you were talking about the El Casimano book, whether it kind of counts as cosy crime, Andy, in a way.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it would. Yeah, Yeah.
3: because I picked a couple of cosy crimes. So... um, most of us have doubtless let, read or seen Frinnie Fisher. Well, Frinnie Fisher is no longer with us, but her niece or perhaps it's great niece, Ms Fisher mm. is now um with us. Can you describe how she came to be, Ms Fisher? Uh, Ms. In a book? Fitcher, the original? Oh, no, no, the, the the new one in a How did she come to be in a book? She started on television. Oh
2: yes. Oh yes, she started on television. They and then they um actually contacted a whole load of people to ask for a recommendation. This is the production company Every Cloud Productions. They wanted someone to do a novelization. And um, they went to Catherine. Catherine Kovic. Yes, Catherine Kovich. Kovich. Kovic, yeah.
3: Well, it's great. It's it's lots and lots of fun. So when you've had a few glasses of champagne on Christmas Eve, great thing to uh, tuck yourself up into bed with or possibly digging up dirt. A wonderful first crime novel by an absolutely NOS first-time crime crime writer, Pamela Hart. It is lots of fun. Archetypal Sydney scene, renovations, bones are found under the floorboards. What could possibly uh, be happening? But if you want something slightly more serious and possibly more blokey, if we're going to make gender distinctions Mm -hmm. like that, Um, although i absolutely love them came late to them mick heron the slough house series cannot recommend them too highly i listened to them all and i was in tears when i got to the end of the last one partly because of what he did but partly because there were no more and that's been a long time since i thought but where what's he doing this man how can he leave us like this mick heron slough house it's a it's a it's a spy series a sort of superannuated spies and that sounds really boring. It is sensational. It's very funny. And very, very funny. But serious and heartbreaking and, and a reflection on English society and so much. Yes, it's kind
2: of like the, the absolute antithesis of Ian Fleming. These, uh, these oh, are yeah, kind of incompetent spies but who also somehow or other manage to turn the tables there's a kind of neat, neat flick at the end of every book of the series where they kind of come out on top,
3: including the appalling central character Jackson Lamb. Yeah, well, I've just seen the latest Bond movie, actually, <laughs> and there's there's similarities in that there are. I mean, it's completely different, but there, God, there's incompetence portrayed in that latest Bond movie, and and he, and in Slough House and in all those those McHeron books. The the powers that be, not the kind of superannuated spies, but the main spies, are horrifying and mm. shocking and disagreeable and incompetent and many mm. other things. Mm. And it's so
2: very very
3: British. Mm.
2: <laughs> Suzanne, you uh, are looking at the Safe Place by Anna Downs, who is also going to be appearing at our festival. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, uh, I really enjoyed the Safe Place. Uh, Anna Downs is English born, but she lives in Australia. And I again came to this book when I interviewed Anna for BAD uh, a couple of years ago. Now, when you're giving people something for Christmas, I mean, there's a few things to consider. I think one of them is the cover. And this is a really great cover. It's um, got a sparkling swimming pool, uh, looks out into the ocean. Uh, The title, The Safe Place, is already a captivating, intriguing title. And the book itself, particularly for people who haven't read crime, is a really good entry into intrigue, thriller. This probably isn't a crime genre book, but it's the story of something that isn't quite right. So we meet Emma Proudman, who's a struggling actress uh, in England, who in the course of a day loses everything. So she loses her job, she loses her accommodation, and she loses her confidence, and um it's then that she's offered the chance of a lifetime which seems almost incredible and perhaps it is. So she's offered uh, a job to go to the south of France to be the nanny for her former boss or his wife and and their child and Anna Downs writing is great. Uh, She's light, she's witty, she's evocative, it's quite lush at times but it never goes overboard and we follow Emily Proudman into this extraordinary wonderland in the south of France where she is introduced to a family of wealth beyond measure, but perhaps as a catch.
2: What I remember about that book is a sense of dread you know, it, it it starts in a kind of everything's going wrong for her and then everything's going right and then there's this quietly building sense of there's something dreadful going on in this safe place
0: and it becomes a completely ironic title. Mm. Yes, yes. And the interesting thing is, and this is what makes it a difficult book to talk about, is a denouement you just can't talk about no. at all. And she does this very cleverly as well. And as you say, Sue, so the dread mounts but you're not sure what the dread is about and you're given very little indication until it comes to a head and then of course when you read it for the second time you see how Mm. slowly she set it up Mm. yeah and there is a chapter early on that does give you a
3: possible clue but you don't actually see it at the time which is why it's so clever
2: yeah, there's, there are, there are books that when you get to the end you just have to go back to the beginning to see how it's done and and one of those for me was Christian White's The Wife and the Widow. Yeah. And the, the minute I finished it I had to go back and read it again think, and go on, how did, it, did he yeah, do that? Yeah. How did he do that? Yeah.
0: It's interesting with with that um with Christian White's book with The Wife and the Widow, I listened to it an audiobook. I think it's one book that works less well on audio than in the book, because for those very reasons that you say, Sue, where you have to work out how he has set out the, the intrigue and how he has set out the, 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 the plot development. Yep. And, and yes, yeah, so I've always been thinking I need to go back to that in print. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing we wanted to talk about today
2: was the upcoming bad festival, which is taking place over four days in December. Um, Catherine, you are the artistic director of the festival. Um, What are you particularly looking forward to?
3: I'm looking forward to everything. And as you've doubtless noticed, I've been throwing in little references to the festival all the way through our previous conversation. In fact, we all have. So look, what is crime, you know, this really gives us a chance to look at what is crime writing. Um, We have crime fiction, and crime and, and fiction that is not absolutely crime fiction, but has a lot of crime in it, as we've all already talked about. Um, so, you know, Larissa Barent's After Story. Um, and a, there are a couple of other things that I mentioned. Uh, Tony Birch, Darker's Last Night is actually the title of the book. Or indeed, most people won't think of Brian Brown as a crime writer, but he's there. So you've got unconventional fiction and you've also got completely conventional fiction um tra- traditional in inverted commas crime writers some fantastic usual suspects michael robotham gary disher um, and many others and then you've got new writers i really think it's important to have new people who are starting to write their first book particularly in covid um, that's always tricky. But we've also got um, true crime. We, we're talking about um, criminals. We're talking about surviving criminality and how you how that happens to you and how you how you deal with it. We've got what happens when people go missing. We're talking about serial killers. We're talking about prison escape. So there's a lot of that. Um but we've also got some fun, relatively fun stuff. Champagne Cake and Crime, I'm rather looking forward to with lots of cosy crime. So there's a huge range. And both Susan, Suzanne and Andy... And in fact, you will be doing something. So I'm going to ask each of you now what you're doing and what you're looking forward to. So, Andy, you're doing two sessions. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, – I've got the Fresh Blood session, which is the debut crime authors, and we've got um, Lorraine Peck, Sarah Thornton, Lynn Yowart and Peter Um I'm going to have to apologise to him on the day. I'm sure um, it's always a fun session because these are debut crime authors that are getting to talk about their work often for the first time um, and, and their first time they're appearing at a festival. And so it's a real kind of privilege to get to to have those conversations with them about their work. Uh, and then I'm also doing another session, which is the past is never past, which is um, B.M. Carroll, Catherine Jinks, and Peter again, Sarah Barry as well. Um, which is kind of looking at you know those crime stories where you know something from the past has obviously come back to um, to change the present or and that could be sins, that could be um, some sort of secret, but um, I'm looking forward to that one because those books are um, are really interesting too. So yeah, I've got quite a quite a diverse um, little. A couple of uh, events to participate Yeah, quite to participate a lot in. to read, but
3: I'm, I'm mm. sure I, I know do. you've done that.
1: Uh, I've got, you know, I think there's three that I've still got to read because the other problem is that you know because of the delay of the festival, you know, we've kind of done the prep work yeah. six months ago, and so we've got to kind of go back and reread the books because yeah, we're yeah. Sort of, to keep you know, yourself current.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the third thing I do want to say is. I think it was last year was the first time you interviewed at the festival. And I don't think we'd met. And I thought, well, this guy sounds all right. But I've given him three completely different (laughs) books. What is he going to make of it? And I was transfixed. It was a really good session. Ironically, the only one that didn't get recorded, I was furious about that. (laughs) But that was was really good. And, And so much of what you get out of books comes uh, out of a session, a festival, comes from the skill of of, of the um, interviewer. And we have some fantastic interviews. So apart from your, you, Suzanne is also interviewing. So what are you looking forward to, Suzanne?
0: Oh, I'm looking for, forward to both sessions. The first session I've got is Through the Eyes of a Child. And um, – what we'll be talking about is how children explain the inexplicable or understand the incomprehensible. And to talk about that will be two authors, Lynn Yoart, whose um, book we'll be discussing, The Silent Listener, and also Mark Brandy, who'll be well-known to to many of you, uh, and we'll be discussing his recent book, The Others. They're both very different books, but both explain... uh, the trauma of young children who live in difficult situations—some uh, which is immediate, one which is immediately obvious, and one in Mark Brandy's case, where the reality of the situation only comes on to you slowly. So, um, so that should be very interesting. And I didn't realise that you were going to talk about the
3: Emma Donoghue book. So that's a perfect. In fact, you were the perfect person. You see, intuitively, I knew I, you, could you do knew it exactly. Something. Excellent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> The second one I've got is called What Lies Beneath the Surface. And um, that's about personal relationships gone wrong, about greed, fear, suppressed secrets... And how this all factors into crime mysteries. So there's um, three authors for that. Barry Maitland for his newest book, The Russian Wife, which is terrific. And Wendy James. I've long been an admirer of Wendy James. I really enjoyed The Golden Child and An Accusation. And she's coming to us with her new book, A Little Bird, which I'm in the middle of. And that's about a um, a woman whose mother and baby a sister disappeared inexplicably years ago, and uh, the girl now growing up comes back to her country town to see what's gone on. Another country town story. Another country town session, mm-hmm. and finally Anna Downs for her new book, *The Shadow House*, which takes place in a eco village in the Central Coast, and that so that's a terrific read as well. Thank you for that. It's 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 there's a huge amount of
3: variety in all these new in all these new books and all these new writers, and you know that they're going to carry on and do mm. really interesting things. Mm. Um, good, good, interesting subjects that are being uncovered. I think that well, that's one of the reasons I think crime is always fantastic. And there are also, interestingly, non-crime writers turning to crime. So, you know, Kelly Hawkins has written children's books. Peter Pepetanazio has written a memoir. Pamela Hart's written historical fiction. Laura Elizabeth Woollett's written literary fiction i don't mm. quite know what you'd call it mm. she's a very idiosyncratic writer so that is is always um is always fantastic we've also got a really strong representation of first nations writers talking about crime and for me almost every fiction written by a first nations writer is a crime book because of the crimes that we, that have been committed against them um since colonization, since invasion, so we've got people talking about Australia as a crime scene. That's Melissa Lukashenko, Julie Jansen, and Cody Bedford, and they're being interviewed by Daniel Browning from the ABC. And there are several other sessions. Um, "Daughter of the River Country" by Auntie Di O'Brien, which is talking about how how you survive the unsurvivable. Actually, it just it's quite extraordinary uh, the life she went through and, and what she achieved. So, just a lot of different approaches to what we think of as crime and i think it's going to be fantastic <laughs> and before we finish <laughs> and, and this will be what we finish on in fact um the dog should the dog die should the dog be killed this comes from an article that sunari Gen- gentile wrote and that i read and thought well i don't see why you can't kill a dog you can mutilate people but we're not going to be serious are we sue well you've you've
2: Dobbed me into that one, um, the great debate to kill the dog or not. That is the question to be chaired by Richard Glover, dog lover, and I'm up against. Uh, w- I don't know which side I'm going to be on yet. We haven't actually well, drawn we haven't decided. Dra- we haven't decided who's going to be on what side. So I may be arguing to kill the dog or not to kill the dog. Who knows? Um, but I'm looking forward to it because it's actually even though it sounds like a kind of. Um, almost silly proposition. It really is about what are the limits? What can you deal with in crime? What line can you not cross in in the danger of losing your reader? And, and to be quite honest, I remember reading a book by um, American crime writer, Carol O'Connell, where the dog died on page four. And I did actually stop reading. <laughs> but if I end up on the, you've got to kill the dog, I will come up with a heroic argument you can be sure of that. I will um, be there with my microphone
3: arguing for the death of the dog if I have to. It's okay. I think we're going to be killing dogs but we're not advocating the We're not of advocating. The dog I am, the am a dog, dog lover. I would never kill a dog.
2: No, seriously, this is this is just a hypothetical. Yeah, and it's a and metaphor
3: really for and what it's you a metaphor. can do and what
2: you can't do. Anyway, that's the end of our podcast for today. Thanks for joining us. So, That's it for this year. We're going to take a short break and be doing lots of reading and plotting over the Christmas break. Um, But we'll be back in the new year with a whole new set of podcasts in 2022. In the meantime, don't forget to hop onto our Facebook site and share your crime reads with us and what you're getting up to in in the crime department and how successful maybe some of our recommendations were or not. And also... Remember to have a simply wonderful Christmas and New Year and all the very best from all of us.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival.
0: If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About
1: Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller partner Booktopia, You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes.
0: If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too.
1: The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival.
0: Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.